From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. In the last few years, there's a phrase that people started throwing around. The world's first climate change refugees. We should expect to see more climate migrants. In some ways, they are also environmental refugees. Climate change migrants and climate change refugees and evacuees. Whatever you want to call them, people are forced to leave their homes because of things like rising seas, rising temperatures, and extreme weather. The U.N. says there could be up to a billion in the coming decades, including millions right here in the U.S. People like Malcolm Lacoste, or as his friends call him, Lil Mackie. He's a shrimper about 100 miles southwest of New Orleans. He's on his boat just getting back from four days catching shrimp in the Gulf of Mexico. It's nice to be getting home. On board with him is WWNO reporter Tegan Wendland. It's real pretty up here. I think that's why I like it so much. My scenery all the time is what people take pictures of. The early morning sun sparkles on the water of Bayou de Large, a channel that runs from the ocean all the way to Mackey's house. Here on the Louisiana coast, the bayou is like the main street of a small town. Every house you pass so far is first, second cousins. Oh, wow. Just... You go from the Lacoste to the Lavos to the Dehards. It's it's all family. But the water that connects these families also makes their neighborhood increasingly dangerous. The land here is disappearing, making it one of the most vulnerable places in the state to flooding from hurricanes and tropical storms. Some of the houses are raised up high on stilts. Some are empty because owners have moved away. Those who remain, like Mackey, have to plan their lives around hurricane season. The first thing I do is watch the weather, especially once you get into June and July, when your storm starts really brewing up around. I have to get in, lift everything up that I can, get it out of harm's way, secure my boat, and then get out of Dodge. As storms continue to get worse, Louisiana's Republican legislature has been reluctant to place the blame on climate change, but they can't ignore the effects. The state's been planning for the next big storm ever since the devastation of Hurricane Katrina more than a decade ago. And thousands of people like Mackie are waiting to see if those plans will help them. Tegan Wendland takes it from here. You can't really see what's happening to the Louisiana coast when you're on a boat. Because first off, the coast is all around you. It isn't a straight line of beach or cliffs. On a map, it looks more like the bottom of the state's boot shape is unraveling into marshy fingers that reach out into the Gulf. The best way to really picture it ready? is to see it from above. Ready? Woohoo! I take a tour on a tiny propeller plane. On board with me is a coastal scientist, Alex Kolker, and an environmental law professor, Rob Verchik. Oh, look at those birds over there. Oh, got it. Little white pelicans, it looks like. Yeah, they get up pretty high. We dodge the pelicans and look down on what's making Louisiana's coast such a dangerous place to live. Alex points out how the land is becoming marsh and the marshes are dissolving into water. That intact marsh that we flew over at the start of the, of the flight is probably what these areas used to look like 100, 150 years ago. And now we've just, you know, if you eyeball it, you know, it's 60, 40, 70, 30, water to land. Land is washing away into the Gulf. 2,000 square miles have disappeared since the 1930s. It's caused by sea level rise, long-term erosion, and oil companies. 
you could see how this area was drilled for oil, right? See all these little canals? They've dug canals so their boats can reach oil rigs they built out in the marshes. And those canals have eroded and turned to open water. To preserve the land that remains, the state's pumping in dirt to create marshes and barrier islands and building levees, basically walls to hold back the ocean. As the plane turns, Alex tells me to look down. So that very unnatural feature is the, uh, is the shape of the levee. It's a straight line made of tons of dirt dividing the open water from land where you can see houses. But not all of the houses are safely behind the levees. That was Will Mackey's house right back there. Nice. Yeah, we flew right over it. Nice. The water seems to be very, very close. You know, you, and in the air you can really see how close the water is. Mackey's house is on an unprotected little spit of land, surrounded by water. So how do you think it feels to be some of the families that are watching this big levee go up and they know that they're outside of it? Oh, well, that's, that's got to be devastating, I would think, right? Because they know exactly what that means. That's like the, uh, like the lifeboat sailing away without you on it. After we land, I ask him a follow-up. What happens to the people who are left behind? Well, people will migrate, one after another, uh, and towns will, will fall apart as a result, and economies will tank, and it'll all be very chaotic. It will happen. Uh, the only question is, are we going to get ahead of the curve? Louisiana has tried to get ahead of the curve. After Hurricane Katrina, the state unified its planning powers under a single agency, the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority. Bren Haas is the lead planner. You look more prepared than I. (laughs) He's a little self-deprecating, which must come in handy when you're trying to pull off such an ambitious mission. We uh, are charged with uh, restoring our coastline and reducing risk, protecting our citizens from hurricane storm surges. For the last decade, that's meant trying to save the land by building all of those marshes, barrier islands, and levees. But in the 2017 version of the agency's coastal master plan, that's changed. We know um, that the future of our coast will be a a much different coast than it is today. Um, By different, you mean there will be less of it? Yes, yes. Um, We we can't restore our coast to the level that it was at 10 years ago, 100 years ago, certainly. The state is now admitting it's a losing battle. Some land will be lost forever. Flooding from storms will get worse. And there are some people on the coast the state will not be able to protect. The coastal agency used an elaborate statistical model to forecast how bad flooding might get. If a strong storm would cause at least five feet of flooding, they say you should raise your home a little higher than that. And if the floodwaters are projected to hit 12 feet, you should just move. They estimate there are 2,400 houses like this. And the plan is to pay the homeowners to leave and knock those houses down. Just putting that down on paper, Bren says, that's kind of a big deal. I think it's uh, important to note that um, this is really the first time we've had this kind of this level of discussion about this sensitive of a topic. People don't want to be told they have to move, especially coastal Louisianans. They're fiercely independent. Many of their ancestors moved to the coast in the first place because they didn't want the government telling them what to do. Native Americans driven into the marshes by the Indian Removal Act and scrappy French settlers like the grandparents of Mackey, the shrimper. A big storm could cause 14 feet of flooding for his house. That would make him eligible for a buyout. I wonder if he would take an offer to buy and demolish his house. 
I would like to think about it a lot because that's my whole livelihood. It's not just where I live at. Uh, probably now that I've been doing it a while and I'm getting toward the end of my, I would probably consider it. I seriously consider it. It's not going to get any better. The more she isn't coming back. Now, remember, Mackie's house is just one of 2,400. So I wonder what the rest of them would think. And would money change their thinking? I decide to do an informal survey of Mackie's neighbors. Hello. Starting with a group of older men fixing the engine on a shrimp boat. Mm. Reveal Stan Elkhorn came with. So how big would a government check have to be? to convince any of you guys to, to, to move some rounds. About $10 million apiece. $100 million! See, most of us down here, we, we wouldn't want to live anywhere else. So I think that little interaction gives you a sense of what you encounter down here a lot. But as we talk to people, we find it doesn't take much to change their minds. For instance, we come up to one house. Windows covered in plastic and plywood. Hi. 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 We're reporters. Okay. Diana Liner answers the door. Is that something that you would be interested in? If there were money to help you move, would you move? Uh, I mean, I'm 57 years old. My husband's 61. We're too old to start over on a new house and new payments. Mm-hmm. She says she's flooded and rebuilt so many times she can't remember. After Katrina, she applied for help to elevate her house. But she couldn't get the money. The bureaucracy involved was just too complicated. And the laws are so stupid that my house didn't get raised. <laughs> Somebody's That's my inside. daughter. <laughs> her daughter, Consuela Punch, peeks through the window shades to see who her mom's talking to. Hi. Then comes out the front door, wearing a cheetah print robe. So we were asking your mom about buyouts, if there were any kind of buyout program. The ocean's coming up. More storms are coming. People here will have to move. It's one of the most vulnerable parts of the state. And so we were talking We don't want to move. But if there were money, would you? Yeah. They don't have a lot of faith that a new government program will help them. But if it was easy, if it paid enough money, that's a different story. Again and again, it doesn't take long to get from no, we don't want to move to name a price. All it really takes is a conversation about flood risk, but also about dollars and cents, which Bren Haas, the planner at the Coastal Authority, understands. Our first step needs to be to go to that local entity, the community, whatever it may be, and say, here's what we're seeing, here's what our data is telling us about land loss and storm surges and, and vulnerabilities, you know, and here's some options to address those bad situations. Uh, that's happening? You are going to those That's not happening yet, no. It's not happening yet. It's not happening yet. The state hasn't told any of those 2,400 households they should move. In fact, despite their elaborate computer modeling, do you know where these specific properties are? Uh, I do not. Um, I don't have a list uh, you know, of, of structures in my, in my pocket or anything like that. The agency couldn't tell us where the houses were, so we requested their data about where the worst flooding will happen, and we made our own map. That's how we found Mackie and his neighbors. Do you want to see the map we made? Sure. Reveal's data team used red to mark the areas where the state wants people to leave, and large swaths of the coast were red. Bren takes a long, hard look at the map. I think, it is, I think it's very interesting. <laughs> he didn't have much of a reaction, but he did email us later asking if he could get a copy. It seems like they could have made the map themselves if they really wanted to. But Bren says the state is purposefully not going out and looking for these people for a very simple reason. 
the buyout program would cost $1.2 billion. And so far, Brent says they don't have that money. There has been almost none. There really has been. Not, not much uh, that would have been available for this kind of thing. And without money, the buyout plan is really just a fancy blueprint. But if the coast is such a big priority for the state, why don't they have the money? Why can't they just appropriate it from the state budget? We asked State Representative Jerome Zerang. Why not appropriate it? Because we don't have it. Why aren't you driving in a Lamborghini right now? Because you can't afford it. The reality is the state doesn't have the money. States usually don't have the money to deal with major disasters like hurricanes and floods. They turn to the federal government and disaster-related grants from the Federal Emergency Management Agency or the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Some of those grants pay for things that sound like Louisiana's buyout program, but they're different. I get a firsthand look at a program paid for with one of these federal grants in Roberta Grove. It's a subdivision a half-hour drive from where Mackie the Shrimper lives. I'm going up this bridge, right? Yes, going up and over the bridge. I go there with Jennifer Gerbasi. She's a local planner whose whole job is managing federal disaster money. So these little plots here are where buyouts occurred? Yes. These are where bio, where buyouts have occurred. Okay, so we're just looking at just a mowed lot here, and there's houses on either side. Mm-hmm. Which is how most of our buyouts are. They're next to other houses. I point to one of the empty lots. This one says it's for sale. Yes, it is for sale. So someone can build here again? Yes. People can build here again, as long as they raise the new houses a few feet off the ground. The federal money being spent here isn't getting people to abandon dangerous areas before a storm. It's helping people who've already been hit. Republican Congressman Garrett Graves wants to change this. He represents much of southern Louisiana, where people are still cleaning up after more than 100,000 homes flooded in 2016. When I met him, he'd just come back from Washington, where he spends a lot of his time trying to get federal disaster money. It's an unpredictable funding stream. And now he's competing for relief funds in the aftermath of hurricanes in Houston and Puerto Rico. He says this whole approach, where we come in with money after the disaster, is just not very effective. Studies show a dollar spent before a disaster saves $4 later. And I think instead of throwing a nickel at every $10 problem across the country, which is what we're doing right now, um, we instead come in and corral or focus those investments on things that are true priorities. Like, for example, investing in buyouts in instances where that unfortunately is the best investment to where we're spending money before these disasters strike and saving the billions that we come in and spend after disasters happen. But these days, he says, that's beginning to feel like more and more of an uphill battle. In 2013, then-President Obama ordered federal agencies to work together to prepare for climate change. But President Trump has rescinded that order. Since the state doesn't have the money and the federal government isn't coming to the rescue, coastal planner Bren Haas says there's only one place left to look for money. A 2006 law that gives Louisiana a cut of offshore drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. There's a kind of justice to using this money, since oil companies are already implicated both in climate change and in eroding the coast. Next year, Louisiana's cut is supposed to be $70 million. That's a lot of money, until you compare it to the price tag of the buyout program. I mean, that's not anywhere near $1.2 billion. No, no. You can't ignore the fact that the dollars aren't there to do it. Uh, obviously, that's a huge roadblock uh, to implementation. And as long as he doesn't have the dollars to actually help people, 
Ren doesn't see a lot of upside in telling people they should move. To go to an individual homeowner and say, this is what needs to happen, you know, in this particular location um, um, might actually be irresponsible at this point. That's <laughs> ridiculous. Scott Eustace works for the Gulf Restoration Network, an environmental group advocating for people on the coast. I mean, it is the responsibility of the state to inform its residents that there are threats to their public safety, and they need to be talking to people about that now. He says people don't even understand the danger they're in, let alone their options. And if they did, they'd be fighting to get help. If the state did have the money and helped all of those 2,400 households move, there would still be a lot of people left behind, like the Williams family. Ollie and Daniel Williams live just northeast of New Orleans in a little rural subdivision called Avery Estates. They grew up out here. This is where we wanted to be forever. We wanted to build our home with our family, have memories. Our Everything. families have been living out here since the 70s. Yeah. So, I mean, my grandpa used to form pigs out here. Never got water this bad. It floods all the time now. And when it does, the water quickly rises in their yard. They've raised their home 13 feet in the air, so the house stays dry, but the cars get stuck, the kids miss school, and life is tough enough already without the flooding. Daniel's disabled, and they live off of his disability check, only about $1,000 a month for them, their two kids, and five dogs. Personally, I only give myself another year on this property, if that, and I'm fed up with it. I'm disgusted. I hate coming home. It's just, we can't be the family we want to be back here. So it's cutting out a lot of our lives. So. But once again, is the government going to give you enough money to do anything, you know? I mean... At least when it comes to Louisiana's proposed buyout plan, probably not. On our map, the area where the Williams live is just outside of the red zone eligible for buyouts. The projected flooding where they are just isn't quite bad enough. So how does it make you feel to see that you know, that red zone's that's up. sickening and sad. It's sad that we're like the only little square that's left out. It isn't just that little square that's left out. There are a lot of people across Louisiana who are getting flooded and want out. But for now, they're all waiting for the next big storm to hit and the federal money that comes with it. That's Tegan Wendland, coastal reporter at WWNO. That story was produced by Stan Alcorn. As tragic as it is to lose a home when disaster hits, the fact is that some people also lose loved ones. Coming up, how the government of Puerto Rico is vastly undercounting the number of people killed during Hurricane Maria and causing outrage among those who survived. You're listening to Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. So I want all the girls watching here and now to know that a new day is on the horizon. This is Oprah Winfrey giving her now famous speech at the Golden Globes. And when that new day finally dawns, it will be because of a lot of magnificent women 
many of whom are right here in this room tonight, and some pretty phenomenal men fighting hard to make sure that they become the leaders who take us to the time when nobody ever has to say, me too, again. Thank you. Oprah's speech earlier this month may have been the pinnacle moment for the Me Too movement, which aims to give voice to people who've been victims of sexual assault and rape. Me Too was started by Tarana Burke over 10 years ago, but it didn't catch fire as a national movement until this fall. The spark was movie producer Harvey Weinstein. Here's actress Erica Rosenbaum talking about her encounter with him. And just a warning, her story and others we hear today are pretty graphic. He, um, he holds me by the back of the neck and faces me to the mirror and very quietly tells me that he just wants to look at me. And, and he starts to masturbate, standing behind me. Other women spoke out as well. And suddenly, after years of allegations and rumors of abuse, Harvey Weinstein's career crumbled. And soon, there were more stories, and more careers came crashing down from politicians like Minnesota Senator Al Franken. Today, I am announcing that in the coming weeks, I will be resigning as a member of the United States Senate. To men in the media, in September, Matt Lauer had tough questions for Fox host Bill O'Reilly. You were accused of sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. You said at the time you did absolutely nothing wrong. Do you stand by that? I do. By November... Lauer himself was out. NBC fired him for inappropriate sexual behavior in the workplace. The Me Too movement is spreading beyond Hollywood, the news media, and Capitol Hill. Women from all corners of society are now coming forward with their stories. Attention to this issue may be new, but the problem is not. Back in 2013, we teamed up with KQED Radio, the investigative reporting program at UC Berkeley, PBS Frontline, and Univision, to look into sexual violence against women janitors. These are people who clean the buildings many of us work in, scrubbing toilets, taking out the garbage, and vacuuming up the crumbs from our sandwiches. A lot of them are immigrants, some here illegally. They usually work alone at night, and that isolation can leave them vulnerable. The team of journalists we mentioned spent a year and a half investigating the industry. Their story was called Rape on the Night Shift, and we first aired it in 2015. We revisit it today because it's rare that these women's stories hit the front page, even in the era of Me Too. Here's Sasha Coco from KQED in San Francisco. The lights go out as the daytime office workers leave the building. And then room by room, they flicker back on. Three stories of glass light up like a shadow play. The silhouettes of janitors appear on different floors, one polishing a window, another mopping. Outside, two women hide behind a palm tree, watching. Vicky Marquez is less than five feet tall, with heels on. Veronica Alvarado has tattoos and green highlights streaking through her hair. Look, Look, do you see him? There's a guy walking. He's passing the vacuum in the second floor. The women are casing this office park in suburban Orange County, about an hour south of Los Angeles. They're undercover investigators with a tiny nonprofit that's trying to root out abuses in the cleaning industry. So we're walking around the building to see the possible entryways. 
They'll sometimes wait for janitors near garbage dumpsters or inside bathroom stalls. Pero no corra porque casa sospecha. Don't run, says Marquez. That makes us look suspicious to the security cameras. Magia, magia, magia. Magic, magic, says Alvarado. The door is still unlocked. Buenas noches. ¿Cómo está? On this night, they find janitors who work seven days a week without overtime, others who have to buy their own cleaning supplies. But once in a while, they'll meet a woman who confides a darker secret that she's being sexually abused on the job. Our investigation found that sexual violence is a problem at janitorial companies across the nation, from tiny mom-and-pop shops to big corporations, from companies that operate off the books to those with shares traded on the New York Stock Exchange. ABM is the nation's largest janitorial company. It's among a rare group of 15 American corporations that have been sued at least three times by the federal government for failing to protect workers from sexual harassment. ABM employs nearly 65,000 janitors. They clean major airports, city halls, courthouses, and towering office buildings across the country. That's the company Maria Magana used to work for. Magania is a tiny woman in her 50s. She's practically dwarfed by the giant vacuum cleaner she straps onto her back. She's been cleaning office buildings in California for nearly two decades. We went on the job with her one night. I couldn't leave it dirty. I dust uh, most of the things. I even dust the signs. The, all these little windows, I clean them. Magania even uses a plastic fork to scrape the dust out from the crevices in the window sills. The next day, we went to Magania's house. Even though she was tired from cleaning late at night, she wanted us to come early in the morning before the neighbors woke up because she didn't want them to know what we were there to talk to her about. But when we got to her street on the rural edge of Bakersfield, the neighbors were already playing music and drinking coffee on their front steps. Still, Magania wanted to tell us her story. She says her supervisor at ABM used to harass her. When she started talking about that, she was much more comfortable in Spanish. So I hit him with my broom and he said, Maria, why are you so mad? What am I doing wrong? It's just a caress. I'm just being affectionate. I told him, you get any closer and I'll hit you with the handle right now. I told him, I'm going to spray this cleaner in your eyes. But he didn't stop. And in 2005, Magania says he raped her. She took us to the bank building where she says it happened. Every time I come to pass by this bank, I remember what happened. That's why I agreed to let you take me. So I could help remind women they should work in places that are well lit, that they shouldn't work alone. The building was closed, but she peered in through the tinted glass door. Behind the stairs is the conference room where that man tricked me, got me into that room. 
He shoved me as soon as I walked in and raped me. Magana went to the bathroom, cleaned herself up, and finished working her shift. Did you have sex with Maria Magana against her will at the ABM worksite? No. Three years later, government lawyers deposed Jose Vasquez, the man Magana says raped her. Did you rape Maria Magana at the ABM worksite? No. The deposition was part of a class action lawsuit involving 21 women, including Maria Magana. It was brought by the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. That's the federal agency charged with protecting workers from discrimination. Anna Park was in charge of the case against ABM. We did not believe they did all they could, and they allowed these women for years to be abused. She says this was one of the worst cases of sexual harassment she had ever seen and showed how the company failed to follow its own procedures. Any good company will say, let's investigate this. Who else is affected? What else is going on? That didn't happen here. The lawsuit claimed that ABM failed to protect the women from harassment and assault in the workplace. Fourteen harassers were named. A dozen of the plaintiffs pointed to one man, Supervisor Jose Vasquez. The EEOC found some witnesses, too. Scott Stevenson was volunteering one night at a fundraising dinner at a church in Bakersfield. Sent some kids out to take some trash to the dumpster, and they came back with the trash. They thought somebody was hurt in the dumpster area. So I went to go investigate, see what was going on, and there was a what I believed was a sexual assault taking place right in front of us. He saw a janitor he recognized as Jose Vasquez near the dumpster. No, I recall the belt not being buckled all the way on his pants. Remember that jingling. He says Vasquez was standing in front of another janitor, a woman. His arms were spread out almost like a starfish, so he was preventing her from leaving that area. Every attempt she made, he would grab her or grope her to get her back in front of him. She was crying. She was in tears. She had that help me look on her face. Stevenson threw the trash into the dumpster. It made a bang. Startling Jose Vasquez, Stevenson called the police, and in their report, the woman said she was frightened. But when the police asked Vasquez to come to the station a few days later, he showed up with the woman. They both said they had just been playing around. The police dropped their investigation, but the church sent a letter to ABM reporting what Stevenson had seen. There's no way that could have been consensual. I've never seen anybody have a romantic interlude by a maggot-smelling dumpster. But ABM never interviewed Stevenson. A few months later, the company got two anonymous letters alleging that Vasquez was touching and harassing women and that he had a criminal record. Help us, said one letter. Please send someone to investigate. But at his deposition, Vasquez testified that ABM didn't ask him about the letters. Nobody from ABM talked to you about sexual harassment allegations in or around September of 2005, correct? No, sir, nobody did. And the company hadn't checked his background when he was hired. Vasquez was a convicted rapist on California's sex offender registry. Government lawyers deposed Timothy Brecky, then a regional vice president for ABM. What's your overall question, Well, I'm putting the exhibit in front of you to remind you that he was uh, convicted of rape by force. I I see that, yes. Brecky admitted the company's human resources department didn't notice that when Vasquez filled out his job application, he left the question about criminal history blank. 
So the question is, do you think it was a good idea to put someone who was convicted of rape by force supervising women alone in buildings at night? No. But Brecky asked why the women didn't report their alleged attacks to ABM. For example, Maria Magana stayed on the job with Jose Vasquez for a year and a half after she says he assaulted her. How these things were not reported in a timely manner, how there was no medical kind of backup to some of this, some of these things. I, I just need to have more information. So it's the fault of the women? Didn't Objection. Mm. Argumentative. You may answer. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't say that. ABM didn't admit wrongdoing, but settled the case in 2010. The 21 women, including Maria Magana, were awarded a total of nearly $6 million. Do you get su café? No. Five years later, Magana still lives in a cramped house in Bakersfield, taking care of her elderly mother and teenage son. She's the only income earner and says that's a big reason why she kept working at ABM so long after her attack. She still works as a full-time janitor and says she's uncomfortable spending the settlement money from the case. Me pueden dar miles y miles, pero yo hasta la fecha no puedo. They can give me thousands and thousands of dollars. But to this day, I can't spend the money with joy because I see it as dirty. That money won't ease my pain, that filthy stain on my heart from that man who marked me. It won't change the past or clean how dirty I feel. As for Jose Vasquez, he was never charged with any crimes related to the ABM case. We tracked him down, but it wasn't easy. Okay, I'm not walking into that. <laughs> Hi, Pooch. Hi, puppy. Because of his previous rape conviction, he's on California's sex offender registry. But when we went to that address, he'd moved without notifying authorities. Hello? We finally found him at a new house, but he didn't want to be recorded. He said he started his own cleaning company, and he wanted to put the ABM case behind him. Some of those women, he told us, were just money-hungry. A few months after settling the EEOC case, ABM was featured on national television, a show called Undercover Boss. ABM portrayed itself as a company that takes a lot of pride in its workers. Each week, we follow the boss of a major corporation as they go undercover in their own company. ABM's CEO at the time, Henrik Slipsager, posed as an immigrant looking for work as a janitor. The boss will trade in his well-manicured lawn and private tennis court for rolls of toilet paper and a squeegee. Rub it, rub it. On the show, a woman oh, janitor taught him how to clean toilets. You like it, right? I love it. Yeah, I tell you, I love it. She had only one complaint about the company. One thing probably ABM could do better is have women wear pants, you know, because, like, if I have to run around and bend over, i got to make sure somebody else, excuse my language, doesn't see my butt behind me or something like that, you know? Like In the end, impressed with her work ethic, Slipsager gave her a new uniform, a pair of pants instead of a dress. Slipsager and other ABM officials declined our repeated requests for an interview. Just before deadline, they sent us their own videotaped statement. 
Hi, my name is Miranda Tolar, and I'm ABM's Deputy General Counsel for Employment Law. Tolar outlined ABM's commitment to a safe work environment, including sexual harassment training for employees and a hotline where they can report concerns or complaints in 100 languages. We believe that our policies and procedures are the gold standard in the industry. Our systems work. In some cases, we have been made aware of inappropriate behavior and taken action. In other cases, allegations of wrongdoing have proven to be false and even malicious, often by individuals previously in consensual relationships that ended. ABM also sent us a letter saying, our reporting is focusing on older cases, and the company has improved their policies and practices since the EEOC case was settled. But we found other lawsuits against ABM. In some of the cases, women say they were fired for complaining. And the company has fought some harassment cases aggressively, even after they lose at trial. They don't want to accept reality. They don't want to lose. Maria Bojorquez is a mother of five and a grandmother. She says she was raped while working the night shift at the San Francisco Ferry Building. ABM investigated, but found her allegations inconclusive. Bojorquez sued ABM, and in 2012, a jury awarded her more than $800,000. The company appealed. When they went to court in May 2015, ABM's attorney told the judges her testimony wasn't credible. She said, I was sexually harassed on an ongoing basis for many months, but there was not a single other witness who ever saw any alleged misconduct well, toward... Would we expect another witness in a nighttime um, shift on a, a janitorial service where he's the foreman and she's assigned to a particular area? There, there are times that they are alone, but there are also times there are other janitors who are working in that same building. ABM's lawyer admitted, though, that their workers aren't always safe. I mean, ABM and its parents, because they're also being sued, have tens of thousands of employees located across the United States and internationally, um, many who work in remote locations at night with minimal supervision. Bad things sometimes happen. We've been talking about the nation's largest janitorial company, but the industry is dominated by small businesses that don't always play by the rules. Lilia Garcia Brower heads up the team of grassroots investigators that we met earlier. They're connected to the janitors' union, but they're also funded by some big cleaning companies, including ABM. The companies say some of the smaller outfits undercut their business. That's probably the number one competitor for responsible businesses are the companies who are paying cash, not paying taxes, not carrying workers' comp. And frankly, you know, those are types of cases where we've seen unreported rape and the more serious, you know, violent, physically violent crimes. Hello? Hola, Vicky. Hola. Voy aquí, pero por la... Vicky Marquez and Veronica Alvarado signal each other with their headlights. They're driving around office building parking lots at night, looking out for janitors. But there are only a handful of these undercover teams, focused on a few cities in California and Massachusetts. There are some two million janitors in the U.S., the people who scrub our toilets and vacuum our floors. Sometimes they're victims of rape, but they're invisible to most of us, working on the night shift.
That was Sasha Coca from KQED. Rape on the Night Shift was reported by Reveal's Bernice Yearn, along with producer Daffodil Altan, Andres Sedyel, and Lowell Bergman from the UC Berkeley Investigative Reporting Program. It was produced in collaboration with KQED, Univision, and Frontline. You can also see the documentary we produce with Frontline at revealnews.org slash nightshift. This story first aired in 2015. Now, with the Me Too movement, women in every profession are speaking up against workplace harassment and assault. And women working the night shift? They're learning to fight back. That's next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. PRX.